and our children may be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. As they are leaving the sanctuary, if you would join me in John chapter 5. Evidence again that I am moving forward. If you happen to have an ESV or an NIV, you're going to be in good shape. If you have a New American Standard as I do, you will notice that I'm going to skip part of verse 3 and verse 4, and we'll explain that in just a moment. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, and withered. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he said to them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's begin in prayer, if you would join me. Father, thank you for this testament of your Son's work. Thank you for the record that we have in scriptures of your gospel, of your law, of your righteousness, of your character. And Father, we thank you as well for the word that opens up the condition of our souls in its depravity, in our sinful state, so that we can know that we need healing, so that we know that we can turn to the holy God and find help and be rescued. And I pray that you would use this text this morning to minister to our hearts, our souls, our minds, minister to the one that has yet to receive Christ by faith, and we pray for those that have received, that we, Father, as your church, may be strengthened in our walk with Christ, in our service for Christ, in our worship of Christ. Thank you again, Father, for allowing us the privilege to be here. 
and worshiping you under the authority of your teaching. Help me to do that well. Help us all to be listeners that are attentive to these words that you've given us in John chapter 5. And we pray this for your glory and for your church. Amen. I was um, paying somewhat attention to the words that we were singing a moment ago, but the, I think the last song, singing flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, took my mind immediately back to our camping trip this last week. If I were to ask you why you would go tent camping in eastern Washington, what would you say? Sunshine, right? Our first two nights, thunder and rain. And the thing about being in a tent when all this is happening, that you're very mindful that it's raining and thundering, unlike being, say, at home in your beds. And, well, many of us found out real quick that the rain fly over your tent is a rain fly in figure only. It really doesn't stop the rain. It's only intended to make you think it's going to stop the rain because most of us are smart enough to camp when it's sunny. That was not the case for us. I'm using this only as an object lesson because you will see on the title this morning that we're going to focus on this passage in regard to the offense or the difficulty or the trouble the challenge that is surrounding the ministry of Jesus Christ, the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 of John marks a significant transition. You can think of it as the storm rolling in, the thunder, the clouds, the rain pelting now on the ministry of Christ who is there to do what is right, fulfill the calling of God in his life, and thereby blessing you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. I think one of the troubling scenes in America today is that no matter the movement that is being made in the political arena, somebody is going to object. Now, it's typical in all politics for there to be objections. But I think what we see in our current times is those objections or that opposition to whatever political movement is being made comes in protests, marches, demonstrations, often vandalism and disruption. People like today to make a big noise if they don't like what is going on. Even when the political action appears to be for the good of the citizens, there will be protests and offenses taken by such actions. And part of the problem of this stems from the reality that sinful men and women cannot agree on what is right and what is wrong simply because human depravity makes it impossible to determine right from wrong apart from an outside and a perfect standard. You and I were singing praises to God this morning, recognizing his holy character, were we not? God is that standard, but you and I also recognize that as a nation, we are turning away from that holy standard. God alone has the authority to declare what is good and what is evil. And sadly, God is being rejected by what much of what our nation stands for today. It is right for us to say that we are one nation under God. In fact, I would say it's right for us to say of the world that we are many nations under God because He is still sovereign 
He is still on his throne, and we are still a people under that sovereign rule. But I think the question for American Christians today is to ask, are we one nation under God's blessing, or are are we under his judgment? Are we under his favor, or have we rejected his law and his authority? The biblical nation of Israel could most certainly say they are one or were one nation under God because God declared Israel to be his own chosen people. The Jews had God's revealed standard of truth, the the word of God. It was theirs, the law of God. It was theirs, the Old Testament scriptures. And this is what makes the rejection of God's Messiah so troubling. It is with the truth of God's word that the Jews should have been able to identify Messiah, not only because of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, but also because of the works and the teachings of Jesus Christ. If they had taken that righteousness in his works, the goodness in his works, and in his teachings, and held those up against the law of God's holiness, would they not? have seen Jesus as truly the Son of God. Here in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, Jesus is going to confront the objections of the Jewish leaders with a fourfold response. And we'll see this as we move into this fifth chapter study. He's going to use the testimony of John the Baptist. He's going to use the testimony of his own good works. He's going to use the witness of God the Father... And he's going to use the confirmation of the scriptures to show that Jesus came in the name of God the Father. And even with this fourfold witness, Jesus concludes at the end of chapter 5 that these Jewish leaders did not believe in him because in truth, they did not believe the scriptures. Imagine when Jesus said that to them, how offended they would have been. Wait... We're the people of God. We love the Old Testament Holy Scriptures. We hold fast to every detail and nuance of the Holy Scriptures. And Jesus is saying to them, No, because you have disbelieved me, you have proven that you don't believe the Scriptures. The story before us now is the third miracle of Christ that John opens up and describes for us in this gospel narrative. Now Jesus has performed many other miracles by now, but John to this point point, has only described three miracles. The water to wine in Cana, the healing of the nobleman's son in Capernaum, and now as we're going to study this morning, the restoration of a lame man who had been afflicted with some sickness for 38 years. And what the presentation of this third miracle does in John's gospel is that it marks the beginning of the intensity of the opposition and hostility toward Christ by the Jewish religious community. Note verse 18 again. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why all the more to kill him? Because Jesus has spoken and said to them, I and my Father are one. And they knew it. They knew what Jesus was saying in that comment. To this point in the previous chapters, we have witnessed something of a tension between Jesus Christ and the Jewish community. 
But beginning in chapter 5 and continuing especially into chapter 8, we're going to see the hostility of men rise against Jesus Christ with the hope of destroying him altogether. And with this hostility, we are also going to see the response that Jesus gives to those who stand in opposition to him. And you can see from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, Jesus gives that response. The first 18 verses then of chapter 5 set the stage for this verbal response to the Jews by the Lord. And it's in that dissertation that Jesus openly presents himself as the one sent by God the Father and as the one who gives eternal life. So we're going to be talking about resurrection life in this chapter. We're going to be talking about the witnesses that Jesus uses to establish his authority as the one sent by God. And in doing so, we're going to see the characteristics of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. It is why I appreciate those four songs of worship that we just sung. I don't know if you are paying attention to the words, but what was coming out of those worship songs is the character of God himself the very character of Jesus Christ. And as we move through this section of John's gospel, I hope we pay very close attention to who Jesus is in his divinity, in his divine nature. One characteristic that is to be noted here at the beginning is the determination of Jesus Christ to face the growing opposition to the hostilities that were coming against him. I want to put up on the board just a comment by James Boyce who points out that this section is very important for the church in that it teaches us as believers the perseverance that we need in service to God in the face of hostile opposition. In his commentary, he made this statement, little is ever accomplished in this life without a firm purpose. A firm purpose. Jesus is showing us that firmness to his purpose, his calling, and his perseverance in this. And I believe Boyce was very discerning in bringing this to our attention because we can be very prone to withdraw from our Christian service, our Christian calling, when opposition is experienced. And when we do this, it only reveals that we lack firm purpose in our life as followers of Christ. And without a firm purpose, we can be very much like the Galileans that we read about in our previous studies. Those that were coming to Christ or those that are coming to Christianity merely for what we can get out of him or out of Christianity. My concern for much of the Christian church today is that those professing to be believers seem to want the Christian title, they want the Christian name. Perhaps they want the warmth of Christian fellowship, of belonging and coming to church. Or perhaps the security of joining with others that are heaven-bound. Whether they're believers or not, it can kind of give you the sense that, well, these people are going to heaven. If I cling to them, maybe I'm going there too. But according to Scripture, the true believer in Christ has denied self, taken up a cross, and followed after the Lord with a firm purpose in life as a disciple of His. This is what Boyce is talking about. Little can be accomplished in the Christian life if we don't have a firm purpose. 
The perseverance of the Lord in fulfilling his purpose is the very reason that we are to affirm that we have adopted, been adopted as children of God. The very fact that Jesus Christ endured, was determined, had a firm purpose, and persevered is why we can sit here and say, I am saved. He endured the hostility, endured the, pers- uh, the uh, uh, persecution, the opposition, the hatred, the obstacles, and he pressed ahead all the way to Calvary and to an empty tomb so that you and I can enjoy that eternal life. We are saved people today because of his perseverance. You have to appreciate the words of Jesus there in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Here, the perseverance of the Lord is a testimony to his people in preparing us to persevere in a firm purpose as he has given to us. And as we move into this study where we witness the intensifying hostility of the world toward the Savior sent by God, it should serve as instruction to the church that faith in Christ puts us in opposition to the very community that we hope to win for Christ. And this is going to require a great spiritual resolve on our part to press ahead in our calling as followers of Christ especially when we face disapproval. Fear, discouragement, and a host of other costly consequences of ministry have caused many to fall away from their devotion to Christ and to his service. And I suppose that I could have adopted any number of titles for this series as we march our way through John chapter 5. But it's the determination of Jesus Christ to do his father's work against this growing hostility that stands out to me in this text. It's not even the faith of this invalid man that stands at the forefront because we're not even sure from the text if he had saving faith. Rather, the miracle is presented as a good work of Christ that arouses the opposition of those who rejected Jesus and who he was. Yet what this passage exposes, even in the midst of, of this hostility is the richness of Christ's character. And we are prepared for what it means to follow Jesus. I need to learn from this. In my own walk of faith, we need to learn from this. I need it as well. So we begin in the first 18 verses with what I've entitled the miracle and its consequences, which introduces us to the response of Jesus Christ where we learn who he is and we see his perseverance in action. Verse 1 prepares us for the miracle and its consequences by showing us that Jesus had come to this earth to fulfill all righteousness. Notice in verse 1 what's going on here. At the same time that Jesus is God and he has the power of life within him, he also has submitted himself to attend to the festivals that were expected of the Jewish people. Now, it's uncertain which feast this refers to, but it appears to be one that was expected or required of Jewish people to attend and participate in. So Jesus returns to Jerusalem from his Galilean ministry to take part in this somewhat significant feast. The actual Jewish festival, I want you to notice, though, is overshadowed by the events that are recorded here in John 5. Setting the stage for the instruction of the Lord is the miracle of healing that Jesus brings to an invalid 
in Jerusalem. This was an act of divine grace, divine kindness on the part of the Savior. And it's hard for us to imagine the bringing wholeness and health to a poor soul that has suffered for 38 years should be viewed with contempt by religious people. But is that not exactly what takes place? Jesus extends kindness. He is doing good to this man. He is fulfilling the righteous calling of his father. And what does he receive for that but contempt? It really is not all that far removed from what you and I are witnessing so often in our own culture. Right now, in California politics, there is a strong movement to make it illegal to provide biblical counsel to help those that are struggling with the sin of sexual deviance. People that want help and that come to the church. The the state wants to shut that down. In recent months, a movie that has come out called Unplanned, and I know some of you have seen this. It's a movie about a true story, a woman that was a doctor performing abortions, and she had a transformation take place in her life. And it has stirred up a great deal of controversy, has experienced a great deal of hostility. Why? Because it places value on human life in the womb. People that intend to do some good, and it arouses such conflict. It's hard for us to imagine that people are coming under attack for their attempts to defend unborn infants or to minister to those who are struggling with sin and want help. And they come to the church crying out for help. But in reality, is that not what's been happening for 2,000 years? As the gospel has been throwing out a lifeline to rescue the eternally damned and offer them life in Christ. Even in our own nation of freedom and liberty, we're witnessing an ever-growing offense towards those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are difficult times that we live in. But as we turn to John chapter 5, Jesus also lived in difficult times. In understanding the circumstances of this miracle of Christ and its consequences, it's important to note, first and foremost, looking back at verse 3 and 4, I skipped over those passages because that passage is not found in any of the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel. And this means that scribes later on came and added that and appears that they added that in hopes of explaining why the water was being stirred in verse 7. So I'm going to read those words that are not part of the original manuscript. Verse 3, In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Most of your versions will have a parenthesis now around the words, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water. Whoever then went first, after the stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Some scribe added that later on in hopes of explaining what was taking place in verse 7. But again, it's not in the original manuscript. So I don't think it's appropriate that we regard it as the holy word of God. In fact, it appears from historical evidence that the idea of an angel coming down and stirring the waters and people actually getting healed was kind of a mystic understanding of bubbling water in the springs in the pool. And this is the kind of mysticism that can enter in even to the Christian religion. 
and how the scribes came upon the assumption that they should add that to the word we don't know. Rather, it appears there was a commonly held superstition that there were healing qualities in the water when the water was agitated. Now, it is quite possible. It is well within God's power to send an angel and stir water and cause healing. We just have no biblical evidence of any such angelic activity or miracle work taking place. And to add it into the Word of God would be wrong for us. So that is why we have left that out. And again, in your ESV and NIV, they've already withdrawn those words. Our study this morning is going to begin in the first nine verses with the restoration that this lame man, this sick man, experienced under the healing ministry, the healing power of Jesus Christ. And again, John wants us to know this man was 38 years with this illness, and it has left him something of an invalid. The language of verse 5 indicates that he's not always been this way. But whatever the illness is, it's left him unable to even drag himself quickly enough into the water where he hoped he would be healed. And again, this man was likely gathered around the pool because there was this commonly held superstition. If you can get into the water first, you're going to get a healing. Verse 1 opens by telling us that a certain season of time had passed since the previous Galilean events had occurred as described in chapter 4. And there's no indication to us of how much time had passed we're talking about between that Galilean ministry and Jesus now coming to Jerusalem. In addition, a number of authors have supposed that Jesus is now entering the city alone because there's no mention of his disciples. Again, that's not conclusive. Because we can go back to chapter 2 and verse 13, and John again shows us Jesus coming in to Jerusalem without mentioning the disciples. It's only later on in the text that we realize, oh, the disciples were there. Was Jesus alone with his disciples? I don't really know. But it is my guess that at this time, with this sick man, Jesus is alone. Because you can picture how it was for Christ as he traveled with his disciples and a crowd would gather around. And it would become well known, oh, this is the miracle worker, Jesus. And yet in this particular text, there is not that stir. There's a kind of anonymity to Jesus. This man doesn't know who he is. And the other sick people around the pool don't seem to recognize this is Jesus, the healer. So it appears that Christ may be alone here at the pool of Bethesda. John takes a moment to describe the pool by the sheep gate, which included five covered porches. And these porches were apparently uh, built to accommodate the large number of sick people that were gathered there. More recent excavations have located these pools, and it's actually more than one pool. It's two pools. And they are surrounded by five porches, or four porches, the fifth one being in between the two pools. Verse 3 builds on this scene by describing those who were filling those porches. A multitude, it says, of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. In other words, this place was filled with sick people, decrepit, infirmed, and helpless. Verse 5 continues this list by describing this man sick for 38 years. And his illness has left him an invalid that couldn't get himself into the pool quickly enough. 
Verse 6 says he's lying there a long time in this condition, suggesting a loss of mobility and weakness to the extent that he couldn't even hardly drag himself there quickly enough to get in before others stepped in ahead of him. This had to be a very pathetic sight to see as people were passing by, moving on the streets of Jerusalem, but we notice it gets the attention and the sympathy of Jesus Christ. But this is a very unique healing scenario too. What is something peculiar about this miracle healing is that we don't find the crowds flocking around Jesus hoping to be healed. We don't read about this man calling out to Jesus saying, Jesus, healer, fix me, make me well. In fact, it appears this man doesn't even know who Jesus is, nor do the other sick people, the multitude of sick people lying there. Rather, Jesus seems to seek out this man. He comes to the pool of Bethesda, and he seeks out this man in particular. This man does not even ask Jesus for help, but rather Jesus asked him, do you want help? This is a very different setting than we would read elsewhere in the Gospels as Jesus moves through the communities and he gets a name and a following and people want his healing. And in this way, because of the uniqueness of this miracle, this invalid is very much like the healing that all believers have received in that God sought us out as well and provided the spiritual wellness that we needed through Christ. And it may well be that John presents this miracle as he does here so that we would find common ground with the dreadful spiritual state in which we were found before Christ. And certainly we can see implications of this even from John's writing in Revelation chapter 3 where John records the words of Jesus inviting the wretched, the miserable, the poor, the blind and naked to come and partake of his salvation as those who are in need of God's healing power. The healing of this man could be a picture of all who are saved by the sovereign grace of God in that it is God that has come after us. He has sought us out. It is by his invitation and his awakening power that we are drawn to the Son for restoration. Remember the words of Jesus. It's not the healthy that I came to see. It's the sick. They're the ones that need a physician. I did not come to rescue the righteous, but sinners. Is this not a picture of Jesus right here in John 5 with this man? He is seeking out the sick because they need a physician. Jesus knew this man's condition according to verse 6. And no doubt the very sight of this man was enough to draw the compassion, the empathy from the great healer, from the physician. So Jesus speaks first. Notice it's not the man that engages the conversation. That would be typical of other miracles. But Jesus speaks first. Do you wish to get well? That may appear a ridiculous question. But in reality, this is an invitation to believe, to trust this man's health into the hands of the God who heals. And it is a way by which the attention of this man, which was fixed on the mysticism of that pool water, to now be fixed on Jesus, the healer. Yet this man is not aware of who he is speaking to here and who is asking these questions of him. He's too sick and weak to get himself into the pool, 
So he assumes that when Jesus asks that question, well, maybe Jesus is the guy that's going to pick him up and throw him into the water when the water is stirred. Because he gives no indication that Jesus is a healer or can anyway help him other than that. Getting well appears hopeless to this man. And after 38 years of this, you can probably sympathize with why he would feel hopeless. This again is a fitting portrayal of our spiritual condition before faith in Christ. We have no ability to bring restoration to ourselves. There's no one around help to help or even willing to help out of this condition. And like so many of the false religions that are out there, there are people that are waiting by those bubbling waters, hoping they're going to get some elixir to fix them, when it is Christ alone that can bring this healing. Help is only in the invitation of God. Do you want to be made well? And as you and I go out into a world that needs this gospel message, sadly, who mo- most of those who hear that gospel question are going to answer, no, I'm not really interested in being made well by your gospel. I'm not interested in your gospel salvation or your Savior. In fact, as we read John chapter 3, is that not what the text told us? Men preferred their darkness. They didn't want the light. The light exposed their darkness as sin. So sadly, in answer to this question, do you want to be made well, most in this world are going to say, no, I don't want to be made well. Knowing the heart of this man, that he very much wanted to be made physically well, Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your pallet or your bed mat and walk. And with those words, the man is healed. He's restored. He's made well. And we read that without any time for consideration, the man immediately experiences this miracle. And Jesus commands him, now stand, pick up your bed and walk. And that's exactly what he does. The miracle is immediate, bringing wholeness to this man before he even has an understanding that Jesus is a person that can make him well. In other words, the immediate healing occurs before faith. Before this man understood that Jesus could be that kind of healer, he's already received the miracle. The miracle of Christ was apparently used to bring about a faith in this invalid man. And we see the response of this man's faith as the, as the man responds in obedience to Christ. He gets up, he gathers his bed, and he walks. That's the response of faith. It's obedience. Now, I'm not talking about saving faith again because we don't know if this man is saved. We're talking about faith in Jesus as a healer. And I picture this man, the moment that Jesus speaks the word, the feeling of wholeness come over his body. You know how you feel when you get the flu or sick, right? You feel it. Imagine being sick in this way, to this degree, for 38 years. And at that exact moment, it's instantly gone. This man knew he'd been made well. How do you respond to that? You're going to do exactly what the man told you to do. You're going to pick up your bed, stand up, and walk. I think what is good for us to see is that this power to heal is later used by Christ to speak of his power to spiritually restore. You can see that just scanning down in verses 19 
through 24. I didn't read those. But I want you to note in verse 21, the same word is going to be used by Jesus that is used here in commanding this man, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk in verse 8. That word get up is the word rise. Notice in verse 21 what Jesus says. For just as the Father raises, that's that word rise, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He pleases. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here? He has just caused a miracle and commanded this man now rise up, showing He has the power to physically give that kind of life that this man would rise up, pick up his bed, and walk away. He then responds to the opposition of the Jewish rulers by taking them to the resurrection of God himself. The day will come when all who are in Christ will be raised up in newness of life. Physically, the body is going to come from the dead, and we will rise again. Jesus then goes on to explain he's not limited to physically raising, but he is the one that grants eternal spiritual life as well. Do you see how important this miracle is to the teaching that will follow? This Jesus is the giver of life. That's what John wanted us to understand when he started this gospel narrative. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He created all things and nothing has been created that has been created without Him or apart from Him. Knowing that makes sense of chapter 5 where He commands this man, rise, get up. He doesn't sprinkle pixie dust on him. He doesn't rub salve on this man. He doesn't help him to his feet. He speaks the word and the man is healed. That's power. And Jesus says to his opposition, God the Father has that power. The Son also gives life to whomever he pleases. We will consider this resurrection power more fully when we examine the response of Christ beginning in verse 19. But to this point, Jesus has displayed the divine character of his power and authority over life in restoring a sick, invalid man to full health. And this brings us to the objection. And imagine that, somebody objecting to this. But this brings us to the objection and the opposition that Jesus will face throughout his ministry leading up to the cross itself. Verse 10 through verse 16. Jesus ta- or John takes us to the objection that the religious rulers have on this gracious act. And the objection is what we find troubling here. In verse 10, the Jewish rulers take note of this healed man walking down the streets carrying his bedroll. And they feel that their laws have been violated. So they confront the man, hey, you're not to be carrying that bedroll. And the man responds by saying, a man healed me a moment ago and caused me to stand up. He told me. He has the authority to tell me, pick up your mitt and walk. So you can understand the response of this man. They don't want to, the religious rulers don't want to know about the miracle notice. They could care less about the the miraculous healing. They just want to know, who is it that told you it was okay to carry your mat on the Sabbath day? 
And this exposes the hypocrisy in the religious rulers of this time and how they had rewritten the laws of God to be their own laws. What God had intended as a day of rest from man's work, his occupation, these nitpickers had applied to every movement that they themselves might regard as work and then they put God's stamp of approval on it by claiming the law of the Sabbath was in play here. That's legalism. It's a perfect example of legalism. Rabbinic opinion, the rabbi's opinion, had rewritten the Old Testament Sabbath law, creating 39 specific classes of work, including carrying something from here to there on the Sabbath day. It's interesting that in the news, I just caught this article on the Mormon church. And you saw an advertisement next week in the Sunday school class we're going to be starting a, um, a study on the Mormon church. I just saw this this week as I was studying. I said, oh, I've got to include this detail. The Mormon church is struggling with the younger generation coming up and wanting to hang out at Starbucks because everybody else does. Well, what's in Starbucks? Coffee. And what's the problem with coffee? It's taboo. Why? Because there's caffeine in it. And caffeine, the church claims, the Mormon church claims, is addictive and it is contrary to their word or their book of wisdom, the Book of Mormon. What is interesting is that in the same article in 2012, there was a decision made by the Mormon church leaders that caffeinated soft drinks are now okay. You can drink a Coke, but it's a sin against God to drink that coffee. That's man's legalism. That's taking man's opinion and laying it over onto the truths of God's word. I want to highlight another statement here by, by William Hendrickson. Again, this is a man that I've, I use his commentary a great deal in my studies. He points out the Pharisees or the religious Jewish rulers had superimposed upon the law of God their own hair-splitting and rabbinical restri restrictions. I think we are wise to take careful consideration of this portion of the healing event because Christians have been known to be guilty of taking their own views of spiritual holiness and fixing God's seal to them with the expectation that other Christians should abide by this code. This same action is being exposed by John in this passage and we are wise to observe that Jesus Christ stands against that man-made righteousness. He does not support it. He condemns it. So the things that we create that seem so righteous and holy, if they're not found in God's word and we're attempting to lay them over, superimpose them into God's word, do we realize we're sinning against Christ himself? We're dishonoring Christ, his righteousness, and the authority of his word. It's rather apparent why Jesus would withstood these religious men because what happens next exposes the wrongness of their hearts. The healed man defends his actions very correctly when he tells the Jewish leaders that a certain man had healed his long 38-year illness. And it's this man that told him to pick up his bed and walk. So an obvious point is being made by this man. He is saying, 
a man with authority to heal me physically directed me to do this. And if he has that kind of healing power, I'm going to do what he says. The Jewish leaders, they completely dismissed the healing power of Jesus as they asked for the identity of the man who defiled their religious authority in Judea. They don't ask who this man is that healed you. They ask, who is this man that told you it was okay to carry your mat? Completely dismissing that a 38-year-old sickness has been wiped away. What's going on here is there's a new man in town. And this new man has overruled their authority. The healed man simply did not know Jesus by name. And it appears that after Jesus healed the man, Jesus didn't spend a lot of time. He disappeared or slipped away from the growing crowd of the group of sick people. And it's later that Jesus and the man meet up again in the temple. And it's possible that this man is found in the temple because he's making up for 38 years of lost sacrifices. Or maybe he's there to give praise and thanksgiving to God for his healing. We're not told. But again, John's focus isn't on this man. When Jesus finds the man, verse 14, Jesus is again speaking to him. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We aren't told a lot about this man's spiritual condition here or what these words specifically mean. This may suggest that the man's sins were in some way the result of sin in his life. The man's sickness was in some way the result of, of sin in this man's life. And may indicate that he has not lived a good life. But it may also be that Jesus is calling this man to the gospel way of life, the way of faith and repentance. This man could either use this dramatic healing as a spiritually defining moment of his life, or he could go back to living as he once did. He could take this gift of health given to him by the Lord and live for his own pleasures, or he could live for the pleasures of God. If after being given such a valuable gift, this man returns to sinful living, what awaits him and all who walk away from Christ is far worse, eternal judgment. So Jesus warns this man to take this gift from God and walk in gospel truth so that nothing worse happens to him. Nothing worse than he's endured for the past 38 years. Now it's unclear what we are to make of this man going to the Jews and reporting to the Jews that Jesus is the one that healed him. He may be showing a betrayal to Christ. He may be giving way to the pressure and the influence of the religious rulers. So the pressure or the heat is taken off him for transgressing their laws. On the other hand, he may be confirming his admiration for the man who's just healed him since verse 15. This is what he says to the Jews. It was Jesus who healed me. Not it was Jesus who told me it was okay to carry the mat down the street on the Sabbath. It was Jesus who heals me. So he doesn't give to the Jews what they're interested in hearing. He gives to the Jews what Jesus did to him. I believe the detail that John wants us to see more than the hostility of the Jewish rulers. Or I should I back up. What John wants us to see more than the healing of this man is the hostility of the Jewish rulers. 
Because the Jews take the news that it was Jesus that overruled their Sabbath order, and they began persecuting Jesus for doing even more than he did here on the Sabbath. So it gives an indication that Jesus was beginning to get very active on the streets of Jerusalem. Perhaps these Jewish rulers were recounting what Jesus did earlier in the temple and clearing the floor of the money changers, performing miracles and drawing people to himself. Remember before, it was gathering the attention of the Pharisees. So here we read, for this reason, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was doing other things too. And it appears to reflect in what we read in verse 18 that Jesus was now accused of breaking the Sabbath. We are not told exactly why that accusation comes. Is Jesus being accused of breaking the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath? Or is he being accused of breaking the Sabbath because he told this man it was okay to break their Sabbath rules. Once again, we're not told, but it's the hostility that is brewing here that John wants us to see. What is clear that it was what began at this point was an ongoing attack of opposition against Jesus and his ministry to suffering people, physically and spiritually suffering people. He's going to do right. He's going to do good to these people. And it catches the attention of the religious community. They stood opposed to his gift of health and to him as the giver of life. Bringing us to verse 17 and 18, what I see is the validation. And I want to close here. The validation that Jesus gives of himself. The validation that we find even in the opposition of the rulers from verses 17 and 18. And read that Jesus answered the persecution of the rulers by saying, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. This was a validation that what Jesus did, even in his indifference to their view of the Sabbath law, carried the authority of God. In other words, Jesus saying, I don't care what your rules are. My father is working now. I will be working now. Both Jesus and God the Father were continuing to work in harmony together and Jesus could not and would not cease doing this work regardless of what they had to say about their Sabbath rules. He was present on earth under divine agreement. But Jesus also made clear to the Jewish rulers that their personal distortions of God's laws would not deter him from the work that he was doing along with the Father. He was making clear that their persecutions and opposition would not stand in his way from healing the sick, performing signs, preaching the gospel, and calling sinners to himself. And this aroused the anger of the Jews even more intensely, such that we read in verse 18, now they want to kill him. They want to do away with him completely. Jesus was not only a Sabbath breaker in their eyes, he was guilty of blasphemy and making himself equal to God. And these Jews clearly understood the implications of the Lord's comments on doing his work alongside the work of the Father in verse 17. He was saying what Jesus would continue to say, that he and the Father are one. And this is what John has purposed to accomplish in writing this gospel. He opened by telling us that in the beginning... Jesus, the Word, was with God because 
He was God. It is in this Jesus that miracles and signs were being given as evidence to prove his divine nature. And this is how John closes his gospel narrative in chapter 20 and verse 30, 31. So many of these miracles, so much could be told of Jesus that I can't even contain them in volumes of books. But he said, I write what I have so that you may know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The sad truth in this account is that even when Jesus demonstrated his divine power and authority in signs and miracles, these religious men were not intrigued or drawn enough to come and examine the Savior, to look at his life next to the scriptures that they had possession of, to look at the prophecies that spoke of him and at least examine him. That sinful men protest what is good in Christ was actually a validation that he, Jesus, was not of this world, but he was sent of God. They closed their eyes to the good nature of God in Christ. And they were only concerned with their own position, their own authority, their own clout their own rules. They refuse to see the greater glory of the Lord's divine nature. They hear about the power of Jesus, but they wouldn't accept him as the God of that power. They witness his miracles and his work, but deny that his work is the work of God. The world's opposition to the good of the gospel that Christ was accomplishing validated who he was. And we certainly see that in verse 18. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. And they said, we reject you. We reject you as God. And friends, in that same sense, the world's opposition to the good that we do for the gospel is going to validate our work, providing that work is done according to the authority of God's word. The first 18 verses of chapter 5 give to us the setting for the instruction of Christ that will follow. It sets the stage for the presentation of Christ that John will give to us from the words of the Lord himself. And this presentation, again, is rich with the character of Jesus. Look for it as we study these things. Look for that richness of Christ's character. But even from this introduction, it is good for us to take some truths of application away this morning. And I want to give you just a couple of them for us to walk away with. I am just not getting this thing to work very well. Let's start with this. Wellness is not only forgiveness, it is deliverance. We back up to verse uh, 6. The question that Christ asked of this invalid. Again, this is the question that is asked of every sinner who is being called to faith. Do you want the wellness of Christ? Do you want to be made well? All of us have got to begin our journey with Christ in faith in this way. Do you want wellness? Wellness is what we need. And wellness is what Jesus alone can provide. It's what he came to this earth to accomplish through his life, death, his resurrection. All men and women must begin here. And we continually, daily walk in the same arena. Jesus was challenging this man in his sickness to put his hope in Christ where he'd been putting hope in stirred waters, or other men to throw him into the pool. The question that Jesus puts to this man was, will you now put your whole life into my hands? 
And this is made clear in verse 14, where Jesus told the man, now you've been made well. You've received this miracle. Go, sin no more. The salvation of God in the gospel grants forgiveness of sin, but it also delivers men out of the bondage of sin. Far too many people say yes to the gospel, wanting forgiveness, but not necessarily to be fully delivered from their sin because they still want to live on their own terms and for their own pleasures. Do you want wellness? And if you can say, yes, I want the wellness of Christ, then understand he is offering not only forgiveness of sins, but that you be delivered out of the bondage of sin, walking in sinful pleasures no more. Second, I think it is important that the church understands and be cautioned in regard to, to traditions as well as to modern trends. We must be as cautious with traditions as we are with trends. There is a lot of new trendy stuff happening in the modern church today that is nothing more than nonsense and some of it is outright evil. At the same time, there are new teachers, new programs, even new music that is entirely consistent with the Word of God. At the same time, tradition must also be tested by the authority of Scripture. The church has far too many times fallen into chaos and disrepair because it's held to the tried and true traditions without examining how true those traditions are to the Word of God. In today's passage, we see an example of that. These very devout religious men were tenacious about holding on to the traditions that had been handed to them by their forefathers. And in comes this new trendy guy with a new message. And they reject him completely. Why? Because they didn't want to go to the Scriptures and examine their traditions, and examine this new man that is healing. The mistake they make and the mistake that we can make is testing all things by the authority of God's Word. God's Word will never change. His truth will never change. So we must examine all things according to God's Word. And third, if the Father is working... Now, we're going to put this in a question form to challenge us this morning. If the father is working until now, and his son is working until now, what must his church be doing? The scripture tells us that when Jesus had finished his work, he returned to his throne in heaven. And according to Hebrews 4, it says that he rested from his labors, as did his father from his. He then ascended to heaven where he is seated on the right hand of God. We don't want to assume from that that both Father and Son are sitting idly in heaven. That's a misuse of God's Word. Jesus rested from His labors on the cross. He did all that was necessary for our redemption. But when He returned to His throne on high, He is there ruling sovereignly over the church today. And according to Scripture, He is ever making what? Intercession. For his believers, he is working to this day. Furthermore, he has directed his church to labor while it is still day because the night is coming, Jesus said in John 9, when we can work no longer, 
Work now during the day, because the day is coming when we can work no longer. It is important for us to see that opposition did not force Jesus out of his work. And neither should oppress us out of service for Christ, nor should anything else, not sin, not pleasure, not leisure, not success, not indifference. Opposition has many faces. And sometimes opposition comes from within the church as well as outside in the world. The perseverance of Jesus Christ should be all the incentive that we need to press on because he endured for our sake. He pressed on that we might be a saved people. He persevered the opposition that we might be redeemed. Should that not be the encouragement we need for our devotion to him? To be working now because our Savior is working, because our Father in heaven is working, so should the church. Fulfilling that firm purpose, the calling that he's given to us as believers. And I know that that looks different for every one of us, depending on the gifts, the calling, the station of life that we're in. But heaven forbid that we fall out of service because of the pressure of the world around us or the religious people from within the church. We serve for the glory of our Savior, do we not? Let's pray to him now. Father, thank you for being a loving, saving God. Thank you that your son persevered against the opposition, the persecution, the hostilities, the accusations, the shame that was brought against his character by sinful men. He endured it all that he might carry a weight of our sins on the cross, be buried and rise again, thus affording to his people salvation. We praise you for that gospel salvation. But let that salvation be an incentive to your church to press on in the work and the calling. To not be derailed by opposition and friction and troubles and problems and trials in life or sins or pleasures or money, success or anything else. Father, we need that firm purpose in life that your son had. Let him be our example. As we work our way through John 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we see the intensifying opposition. Let our hearts be encouraged to press on, to persevere in the day of opposition for his glory and for his name's sake. We pray this together. Amen.